road trips. They're undertaken for pleasure, exploration, following our esoteric interests, visiting friends and family. But they can't help but teach us something about ourselves and something about others. I am Suzanne Lang, and today we visit two people who've traveled this land, crisscrossed our nation many times, and who share a bit about what they've found. It's a novel idea. Road trips seem to be uniquely American, so much so that people from all over the world come here just to take them. Brennan Matthews was searching for a new direction for himself with his family, coming from a life in Kenya. On a whim, they embark on a trip to Los Angeles via Route 66, because as you know, it winds from Chicago to L.A., His travelogue of their journey is told in Miles to Go, an African family in search of America along Route 66. I'll talk with Brennan in just a minute. Later, Brad Herzog joins us. He's the author of the States of Mind collection, cross-country travelogues each exploring the American experience by following certain geographical and cultural threads. His most recent is Detour 2020, a cross-country drive through America's wrong turns. These two authors have very different motivations for their traveling and their writing, but both find that life is changing in the American heartland, some areas embracing a transformation of purpose, other places fading, and that it is in the small but direct interactions that we find who we are as individuals and as Americans. Brennan Matthews and his family are originally from Kenya. He's worked all over Africa, but at a certain point he got restless and wanted a change, and they eventually landed in Toronto, Canada. Further pondering his life and future, his wife Kate suggests a road trip, and along with their son, Tambi, they embark on what many consider the quintessential American road trip, traveling the length of the now-decommissioned Route 66, once known as the Mother Road. Miles to Go, an African family in search of America along Route 66, is Brennan Matthews' chronicle of that journey. Since that initial trip, they have made at least eight more, and Brennan, who previously was editor-in-chief of Destination Magazine, East Africa's award-winning lifestyle magazine, is now editor of Root Magazine, a glossy high-end magazine focusing on road travel, classic Americana, and Route 66. In that Brennan is not culturally American, I was curious about his perspectives and their experience on the road. His book is a charming travelogue of a family through the heart of America, and Brennan is a good storyteller. His wife Kate and son Tembi are entertaining characters in the book, and Brennan expresses the fun they have, and sometimes at his own expense. I began by asking about what led them on this initial trip. So I was editor-in-chief for Destination Magazine, 
for six years. And Destination was a very busy regional title that also had subscribers and readers in America. So we would send lots and lots of copies every year over to to America, every issue, uh, LA, New York, especially. And I worked a lot with celebrity publicists and Disney and CBS and so TV networks and studios and stuff. So it was a very exciting role and a busy one. But, you know, I think that we just decided we hadn't left Africa in, oh, my gosh, maybe 15 years by that point. And so we were just kind of burnt out. And so we were looking at other opportunities and making a bit of a change outside of Kenya, for sure, and definitely outside of Africa. And so initially, we thought we were going to be in New York City. There were some really great magazine opportunities coming up that I was being approached about for senior editor roles. But after spending some time in New York and doing some more interviews, we just decided we need somewhere a bit quieter. And we just wanted to sort of check out and spend a few months to figure out what next. And a few months turned into like a year of really not knowing what we were going to do with life. And that's when Kate suggested, I think we should do a road trip. And let's go down to the United States. She had only ever been to New York State and so did Tembi. I had, of course, been all over the place, but not for about 17 years. So it had been almost two decades since I was really in the U.S. outside of New York State. And I asked her, well, where do you want to go? And she said, let's go to, let's go to Los Angeles. Because I used to work there when I was 18, 19. I was in the entertainment industry. And so she wanted to go down and see it. And we love road trips, but we had never done the quintessential American, great American road trip. And we had heard of Route 66, but we never knew anything about it outside of like just that it was a historic highway. Our son at the time was probably maybe 10 or 9. And so he had been a real big fan of the the animated Pixar film Cars. And of course, that mentions Route 66. And uh, just revitalized it and brought it to a a whole new generation, especially of Western European children. And the more that we dove into sort of discovering what was along Route 66 and what we could see and do and experience and encounter and discover on that route, the more we fell in love with it. I would say that it's very important, especially for this book, for people to understand that this wasn't our great American road trip. And this wasn't an enthusiastic Route 66. It's a bucket list item. We're going to do it. Like so many people we've met since. We really stumbled upon it by accident because we were looking for a great road trip. And we came across Route 66 and decided that that was the road we were going to take. But it was purely serendipity. It was fortuitous. And you did take the entire route from Chicago to L.A., And I saw this largely as a story of reinvention, your own reinvention, but also of the many places you visited that had a heyday perhaps 70 or 80 years ago, but also the people who sometimes took over decaying restaurants or hotels and restored them. So talk a little bit about this notion of reinvention along Route 66? One of the interesting things about 66 is that a lot of people romanticize it. And that's fair. I mean, it's it's a romantic notion of an America of yesterday and how things once used to be. And people perceive that as being more simple, more 
earthly, more friendly, just, you know, post-World War II, where everybody just got out on the road and helped their neighbor. And, you know, there's this real innocence that is put together with Route 66. The reality is Route 66 has always been a road of change and a road of commerce. So right from the very beginning, when people were fleeing the Midwest and the Dust Bowl, and they were heading to California, seeking opportunities when they could no longer farm their land because of drought and, of course, the big dust storms from Oklahoma and Arkansas and parts of Texas and et cetera, people rose up from the road and they said, hey, do you want to sleep on my field? Hey, do you need a bowl of soup with some bread? Hey, do you need this? Do you need that? And so people were constantly rising up, not really necessarily to help a neighbor, but there was a small charge on there. You know, for this, my wife will throw in an extra packet of crackers or some carrots or something. People along the route from Illinois all the way through California recognized very quickly that this was also their opportunity to improve in their economic success. And so a lot of it was born that way. And then throughout the generations, such as, you know, World War II, and and as everything moved westward and the roads had to be widened, you know, and there were soldiers and it was government convoys and it was the slight beginnings of tourism. Well, they rose up to meet that. It was no longer camping. Maybe it was just a very simple motor court and it was no longer just a bowl of soup, but maybe somebody set up a small little cafe on their land. And then that, that of course, cost a bit more. And then with the 50s, you know, post-World War II, when the GIs are back and they had traveled the world and now they had an appetite to travel and wanted to show their families travel and roadside attractions. And so the country really built up a hankering to get out. And how were they going to get out? Well, it was no longer in the train. It was in the comfort and safety and convenience of their automobile. And so off they headed. And where'd they go? Well, they used Route 66 because it cut right through the Midwest and all through the deserts and the cowboys and Indian territory and the roadside attractions and all the neon and the mufflerman giants and all of these things. So the road's always been about people purchasing something that someone else has started and then building on it or revitalizing it or maybe somebody owning it and then just continuing to build onto it and make it better and a more notable experience. And so Route 66 just really represents the Jefferson Highway and the Lincoln Highway and the Extraterrestrial Highway and all of these two-lane highways that went through Main Street America that rose up to actually make a living off of people coming through their towns. It's, it is a romantic route, but it's romantic because we make it romantic. I, what, like when we first traveled the road One of the big things for us, and you see it a lot in the book, is when everything got really quiet, especially at night and the traffic was gone and the crowds were gone, and it was just us maybe standing under a neon sign that's been there for 70 years, there was this enormous sense of standing in time where where many others before you have stood and have now long gone. But there you are, standing where so many people before you have, have been, have stood, have trotted, have slept in this room, have stopped off at this cafe. And so there's a real sense of being a part of history, being a part of culture, being a part of something when you're out on Route 66. That was really powerful for us and that really influenced us as we traveled. But it all came about because the culture of the road 
since its inception was really to just continue to reinvigorate itself. There's a lot I want to follow up with you on just in what you're saying there. But first, I'll say that you and your family traveled uh, slowly, whereas some people might might stop for lunch at some place and take some pictures with something uh, neon or tall or kitschy. But you and your family took your time. And sometimes, I mean, one episode, even just you're on the side of the road for a half hour watching a tarantula. (laughs) And that that you enjoyed the natural world as much as the created world, but that you really did take your time where maybe some others are, don't do that. And is that just how you travel maybe from your time in Africa or is that your urge to really know a place? You know, in Africa, and I think I mentioned this in the book as well, there's no real road trip per se. South Africa has a couple of decent ones, but for the most part, the rest of Africa is very point A to point B. Could take five hours, could take 10 hours. Uh, When we were younger and we would drive from Nairobi to Mombasa, which is less than 500 kilometers. So I'm not sure what that is in miles, like 350 or so. That would literally at times take a 12 hour day just to do that. So there's not a lot of small towns or or things to stop to see, per se. The American road trip, on the other hand, though, if you do the right road trip, and there's many, it's not just Route 66, there's many wonderful options, as you know, the Pacific Coast Highway, you, if you choose to, can just slow down and take it all in. So I would say, A, we had the luxury of not being tied to a job that we had to get back to. And it was over summertime we did this first trip, so we could take two, three months, and just really take our time and soak in America and everything that we were encountering. There was nothing pulling us anywhere. And that's a real luxury. Time, I've realized as I've gotten older, is something we take for granted, but it's an enormous luxury. And I don't don't ever wish to make anyone feel like they're doing anything wrong if they they don't have the time to do the whole, whole trip in one go, for example. We're constantly asked, of course, I'm editor with Root Magazine, so so we get lots and lots and lots of people asking us, how long should I spend on a Route 66 trip? And we usually encourage them that if they don't have at least six weeks to do this trip, like one way, then they should probably try to just do it in the section that they can spend that time in. So if they got three weeks, just do two states or three states at max and actually stop and spend some time. I get really frustrated when I'm out and I'm watching people and they quickly drive up. Some of them don't even get out of their car. They stick the camera out the window, do some drive-by photography and hit the gas. What they're doing is that they're robbing themselves of a really personal and uh, impacting experience to really not just have a nice road trip, but to spend a moment of their time on a stretch of America that has a story, has a lot of stories. And it was in Tucumcari, New Mexico, that you muse. I was really starting to understand the spiritual essence of America's two-lane highway and small, friendly towns that run through them. America has always been such a car culture, 
and when a 1952 Chevy was only getting 10 miles per gallon or something like that, there was a need for frequent gas stops along the way. But America has always been a throwaway culture as well. And the derelict buildings and indeed the road itself are an indication of that. Towns are completely bypassed when the new interstate went through. So what is your take on one why some historical relics along the way, these kitschy kind of constructions, some are preserved or restored and cherished, and others, especially in the West, are overtaken with graffiti and tumbleweed. So I, I and I know you've driven this route many, many times. So what's your take on all that? Yeah, I think that all of it would disappear if it wasn't for individuals who have it in their heart and in their mind to save it. Where we see these things get invigorated, such as Boots Court, one of our favorites down in Carthage, Missouri, or the Wagon Wheel in Cuba, Missouri, or La Posada over in Winslow, you know, famous from the Take It Easy, the Eagle song, where we see these places really come back to shine it's when individuals, generally not even from those communities, stumble upon these motels. They know the story or they learn the story and they get enamored with saving these places. It's countless times across Route 66. And one of the interesting things with that is that we see a lot of people rescue a place, invest a lot of time and money and their heart and soul in restoring it, like Connie Eccles with the wagon wheel. And you know what? Now she had it since 93. And now uh, what is what are we 2022? She just announced that she wants to sell it. She feels her time with the wagon wheel has run its course. And she's been a wonderful steward to the wagon wheel. And you know what? She's made it as good as I'm sure when it was first launched um, 80 years ago. When the right people purchase the right place and they get because they have this connection to it. Man, that keeps these places alive for decades longer and in good shape and celebrating the story that's behind them. Both the people who have been part of their story, um, Route 66, which is, of course, part of their story, but then also the journey that the property's been on. I think that when you get a place where nobody's there, and you mentioned the West, that breaks my heart. This summer... When we were traveling, I was on the road for three months this summer. Kate and Tembi and I are off at least three months every year straight, 90 days on the road, nonstop. And one of the things that I really seen this year going west, which is what you alluded to, is when you leave Winslow and you get to uh, destinations like Two Guns or Twin Arrows or the Meteor Trading, Meteor Crater Trading Post. These things don't have anybody resident there. There's nobody guarding them. There's nobody up making sure that there's upkeep. And that's a real issue because this year when we were at Twin Arrows for, no, I'm sorry, tw um, Two Guns, you know, we were wandering around. We had the whole place to ourselves, which is lovely. It has a wonderful story that we covered in the magazine and I covered it in the book. But as we got deeper in, we found all sorts of like questionable looking people squatting in these broken down dilapidated stone structures and there was a sense of sort of danger like we felt concerned about our safety so we literally made our way back to 
the vehicle, which was about a kilometer away. So we moved on. Twin arrows, one of the arrows fell because it had been repaired before. And uh, when they did repair it, they didn't put the, the base of the arrow in deep enough in the soil. And so with a lot of wind and some snow and bad weather and vandals and obvious neglect, these amazingly photogenic historic arrows, one of them fell. Now we're working with the Route 66 Association of Arizona and the Hopi tribe and some others to try to get that back up and and restored to its glory. Of course, there's a lot of politics behind it, but anything that's been left alone like that tends to really be subject to vandalism and, and the elements. And those things are fading very, very fast. And it's one of the most wonderful stretches of Route 66. It's such a representative stretch of what it used to be in the quirky, kitschy nature as people really travel through Arizona heading west down 66 and across the country. We need to do more. We need to do more to actually protect these locations, destinations, roadside attractions, or frankly speaking, when they're gone, they're gone. And we can bring back replicas, but it's not going to be what what was there. It's just going to be a replica of it. And we would much rather see things restored and preserved than ever uh, have to see replicas. Well, yeah, a replica to me would be um, creating a different reality rather than kind of highlighting our past cultural choices. And it seems like it would be beyond kitsch to recreate something that no longer exists, or at least in my mind. You know, as you highlight in the book, and you yourself are not American, many, many foreigners travel this route. And lots of American retirees work along it. And it seems that part of the joy for the docents and volunteers and proprietors along the way is this exchange between people. And it seems like the friendliness and conversational openness got your attention right away. In fact, you were kind of surprised at how people would just open up with things that maybe seemed kind of personal, maybe about a death in the family or their wife dying or something. So I wonder why is following Route 66 so fascinating to foreign travelers and simultaneously to the Americans who seem to derive a lot of pleasure uh, from that exchange? I mean, it's often been said. So this isn't something that is coming from me. I don't want to take credit for any great epiphanies here, but it's often been said that the Europeans really view Route 66 as the America that they perceived the country to once be. So the post-World War II, when the rest of Europe was in reconstruction, America was running fast. It was running strong and the economy was just flying. Big body cars, neon lights, advertising slogans that just called out in so many colorful, fun ways that Europeans never seen, Australians never seen. And to a large degree, I assume Canadians didn't see nearly as much either. America represented something that was the land of opportunity, the land of um, excess, uh, the land of 
travel and uh, around every corner was a new opportunity. You literally could have a really bad experience on mile 92, but you knew mile, not mile 93 might have something good waiting for you. And other countries never really had that culture. And it certainly wasn't cultivated in those countries like it was America. I think Americans themselves, especially Americans that value America, because I've had a lot of Americans, especially the coastal friends. And when they talk about vacation, they talk about jumping on an airplane and going to Italy or to Greece, or they talk about heading over to Africa for a safari or this or that. They're looking externally. I don't think that they feel like there's a lot that is going to grab them or interest them or teach them in the same way that when they go to other cultures, they'll find. But the Americans that Oklahoma, Nebraska, uh, even Illinois, uh, Florida, Wisconsin, Ohio, and so on. These guys really have, for one reason or another, seem to really embrace road trips, car travel. A lot of them grew up going on road trips, you know, from Chicago or Cleveland. or And their dad would throw them in the car once or twice a year and off they'd go. They're going to go see grandma somewhere, maybe in sunny California or they're going to Disneyland, or they're going to go down to Gettysburg and learn about the country, but they, they're used to road trips. So they hold those memories and that experience in a romantic notion, and they appreciate it a quite deal. And then they obviously want to share that, those similar experiences with their children and so on. The volunteers that you're talking about, they're friendly, they're gregarious, and they just love getting to actually tell these stories over and over again, which is good. Because on a busy year, they get to tell them over and over again. And we just really appreciate that spirit of volunteering. As I said in the book, I'm not used to a volunteering culture. Our elderly, you don't see them anywhere um, in an active fashion like that at a museum or at a, um, a visitor center or anywhere where they're specifically there to greet people coming in. Along Route 66 and similar two-lane highways, they're there. It gives them purpose, and it also brings joy to the traveler, the local traveler or the international traveler, that they get to actually spend some time talking with people generally a bit older. And I think a lot of us who would value a Route 66 trip also respect age and seniority and maturity and the wisdom that those people and their, their life experiences and age have brought. And so it's a real privilege to get to spend some time with them. And I think that the Route 66 audience young or old, are people that really also respect that and pay homage to to that culture and to what the culture is representing. I think it's easy for Americans, whether we are on a road trip or not, to be cynical and judgmental about our own culture. And I guess I'm wondering if it maybe it took an outsider like you to present this the way you have. When I was reading the book, and, and I'll say your family is multiracial, and there were times when you would say something like, that trucker was staring at us while we were sitting at the table. And I would think, uh-oh, here it comes, you know, something, some confrontation. And it would be, but it it was generally like, oh, where are you going? Or where are you from? 
And really, the trip was through a lot of places in the country that have uh, an experience racial divide. And we're at an acute point in our country right now where that seems to even be heightened right now. And I'm wondering your reaction to my reaction that you did not bring a sense of cynicism that we might inflect in this sort of thing. And also just your experience of traveling as a multiracial family through America. I'm going to respond in an honest and direct answer uh, with a slight bit of background from our perspective. This is our perspective, and that's the only answer that we can ever and will ever give. When I was first talking to a few big publishers, because uh, the book is published by the University of New Mexico Press, which, as you know, is one of the largest publishers west of the Mississippi. So that's I'm excited to work with them. My agent and I were working in negotiations with a few of the big uh, New York presses as well, some of the iconic ones. And they kept pushing this racism fact. They, you don't talk about racism in the book. You guys are a mixed race family. You must have faced a lot of racism as you traveled. You must have encountered it. We're racist people or a racist country. And so you must have encountered a lot of it. Why aren't you talking about it in the book? It's the elephant in the room. And we used to tell them we didn't experience any racism. As a matter of fact, everybody bent over backwards to be kind to us, to be helpful to us. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't impolite people out there, but they were black, they were white. It, it was never about race. It was just about somebody who just maybe wasn't a very nice person. And we never read into any of that. We would never naturally read in to, well, he was rude to me because I'm white, or he was rude to me because I'm black, or, or they didn't hold the door open because they seen that I was a man, or they didn't hold the door because they seen as a woman. For us, most of the time, we would just say, you know, that's just somebody who's rude. And maybe one day they will stop being rude. Something will happen to enlighten them and they'll be a nicer person. But I'm moving on with my day. I don't even know their name. So, you know, it's neither here nor there. Um, we ended up walking away from all those big presses because of that. They really wanted me to wax lyrical, if you will, about things that weren't really our reality or our experience. We have no doubt that there's a lot of racism in America, as there is in every country. But we strongly believe that racism is a human condition. So we've seen a lot of racist black people. We've seen a lot of racist white people. We've seen a lot of racist Muslims, a lot of racist Christians. It's a human condition. And so it's something that makes us sad. But Kate says in the book, uh, when we were talking to well, in a number of conversations, actually, because race is, uh, is the topic that constantly comes up, as you know, in America, in conversation. So we had the opportunity, especially as a mixed race couple, to have a conversation on this topic numerous times. Well, okay. So we were in Cuba, Missouri at the Wagon Wheel Motel, and we ran into some recreational bikers from Chicago, and they were nice. And one lady just walked over to us and said, hey, we are having some drinks around the fire and some food would you guys like to join us and they were all white and we said yeah sure we'd love to we never say no to sitting and talking with people we just love that that's part of a road trip for us especially an american one and so we went and we sat around and we got talking and they asked us 
about traveling as a mixed race couple. You must have experienced a lot of racism already. Illinois is very racist. Missouri is very racist. We said, well, no, we didn't experience any racism in Illinois or Missouri. We found the people to be so great and so wonderful and so interested in us and in our background. And they were so grateful that we were coming to America and that we were traveling Route 66 and promoting it and supporting it. And Kate told them, you know, I I don't see myself as a black woman. And Brennan is not a white man and we're not an interracial family. I know that I'm an African woman. He knows he's a Caucasian man. Our son knows that he's mixed race. He's half white, half black. But we don't see ourselves as that. Like We we understand that that's uh, the reality, but that's not how we choose to identify ourselves. We're just a family moving down the road together. And so they were really taken back by that. They couldn't comprehend how we never needed to put ourselves under very specific definitions where for us, we're just a family out on the road. And I think that for us, because we don't look for racism, we don't look for sexism, we don't look for discrimination. To be honest with you, I just don't think that we encountered it very much. And we've traveled all through the South as a mixed race family. We've traveled Route 66 10 times every inch of it. We've been all through California, North and South and Texas and Arizona, New Mexico, North and South. We have never really had any major problems and certainly never to do with race. So for us, we understand who we are ethnically, but it's not a big part of our identity. We embrace it. And we're proud of it. But we're just, I'm just Brennan. She's just Kate. He's just Tembi. And we're just a family who are out on the road. I loved your family relationship in the book. It was a big part of the book. And uh, we feel like we get to know Kate and Tembi quite well and, and their relationship with you. And this was a transformational experience for you in that you're still doing it uh, as editor of of this magazine. So it has been a life-altering route for you. Brennan Matthews, Miles to Go, An African Family in Search of America Along Route 66. I so appreciate your talking with me today. Oh, it's been totally our pleasure. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Brennan Matthews is the editor of Root Magazine. That's R-O-U-T-E Magazine, and you can visit them online. It not only features Americana and stories of Route 66, but celebrity interviews and stunning photography. His book is Miles to Go, An African Family in Search of America Along Route 66. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. Take the highway, that's the best. Get your kids on Route 66. It winds from Chicago to... Brad Herzog has been taking road trips for over 20 years as a way to discover who we are as Americans. He's hit the road following the thread of connection across many miles and many states in a decade-spanning series he calls the States of Mind Collection. Turn left at the Trojan Horse, a would-be hero's American odyssey. Small world, a microscopic journey through America. States of Mind, a search for virtue in America. 
and his latest edition is Detour 2020, a cross-country drive through America's wrong turns. Brad is a journalist with dozens and dozens of magazine articles. He is the author of a series of books of young people, many on sports and all on being a healthy human being in this at times quite challenging world. He made his latest journey during the height of the pandemic and in the fractious ramp-up to the 2020 election. Herzog encountered right-wing militias patrolling through the center of an Arkansas town and met conspiracy theorists who confounded. Through it all, it's his affability and curiosity, along with his RV, Kofefe, that carry him across the continent. Let's listen to our conversation. Your latest book, Detour 2020, A Cross-Country Drive Through America's Wrong Turns, is the fourth book in a series you call The State's of mind collection. And this is not to say that you don't have a lot of other publications. You really are prolific as a writer, but this series seems to be something special. And so before we get into this particular book, why don't you tell us about your whole interest in road trips and writing books about them? Sure. My four American travel memoirs basically fall under the category of creative nonfiction, which it's a little bit self-aggrandizing, but I like to think that the best of creative nonfiction is sort of combines the, the, the skills of various kinds of writing. You have to have sort of the eye for detail of a journalist and the understanding of narrative structure of a novelist and the sort of the soul of a poet. And um, you have to know history and you have to be a philosophical. And I think if you combine that well, um, it can be very riveting. And I was always attracted to that. It all began really in late 1995. My wife uh, and I had b- been married a couple of years and we were living in Chicago and it was the middle of the winter there. Uh, <sighs> and in the middle of the winter in Chicago, your thoughts tend to go elsewhere. And um, I turned to her one day and I said, how would you like to quit your job? Uh, she had a sort of a starter job in a PR firm. How would you like to quit your job and we'll uh, buy a big old RV, which we had never set foot in one in our lives, and we'll travel around the country for a year and I'll try to write a book about it. And I expected her to say, what are you, crazy? And instead she said, sure, that sounds like fun. So I knew I'd married the right woman and we did it. And so then I had a, then I came up with an idea to write about. And I'm a sort of a, a big fan of reading atlases and maps and looking at the fine print and as I did so, I noticed that many of the smallest, tiniest dots on the map around the country had interesting names, uh, like Harmony, California, and Wisdom, Montana, and Pride, Alabama, and Justice, West Virginia. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I sort of examined the state of the union and searching for those virtues, but I turned that, that figurative search into a literal search? And is there honor in honor, Michigan? Can I find um, pride and pride, Alabama. So we did a 314 day journey, 48 state journey around the country. And my notion was if the, if the book didn't seem to be writing itself, we would just stop that aspect of it and just enjoy a sightseeing year around the country until we ran out of money. But every town that we went to these little tiny towns of 18 or 85 or 400 people, after we would leave every town, I would turn to my wife and I'd say, boy, that's going to be a great chapter. So it wrote itself, and that was a book called States of Mind, and that was my first travel memoir, and I've 
I have done three since then. And I've fallen in love with sort of examining the big picture by traveling through some of the tiniest dots on the map and extrapolating history and philosophy and experiences from that. So you've been doing this a while, really, over 20 years, it sounds like, and have probably, I would imagine, seen some changes in this particular year that you're traveling through, 2020, really was a year like no other in modern American history, though we might say that the whole previous four years, and as you talk about in your book, were rather mind-blowing and really culturally fracturing. So you put your cross-country route right in the path of lots of places that are, are not exactly tourist attractions. Tell us how you planned your route and what you encountered, and, and also mention the, the name of your, your trusty RV that kind of got you all the way across the country. Yes, kind of being the important words there. Um, yeah, I, you know, when, when I do these trips, it's not, not only am I examining these towns and the country and sort of extrapolating the big picture, but it's not, it can't be disengaged from the writer himself. So each of my books that I've done sort of represent not only a different era in the country, but also a different era in my own life. My second book was called Small World, and I went to places like London, Wisconsin, and Paris, Kentucky, and Calcutta, West Virginia, and Jerusalem, Arkansas. And I was examining the country a year after 9-11 and the ties that bind us and the wonders in our own backyard. But it was also me having just had two young children with the span of, in the span of 19 months as a new father, wondering what kind of world have I brought them into. And then my third book called Turn Left at the Trojan Horse was a trip cross-country to my college reunion in Ithaca, New York. And it made me think of King Odysseus and his return to Ithaca after 20 years of, of war and wayward travel. And I wondered what kind of heroic life have I been living as I head toward my college reunion. So I went to places like Athena, Oregon, and Iliad, Montana, and Apollo, Pennsylvania, and examined what constitutes a heroic life. So it's not separate, separated from me in any way. So this fourth book, this latest book, Detour 2020, there were really three main reasons why I did the journey. Um, one was that I was dropping my son off. We had borrowed a friend's RV uh, and traveled from Calif our home in California to Wisconsin for the summer for safe COVID safety reasons. We had an RV. And then I was dropping my son off in Virginia where he was going to live with some friends while taking a gap year from college. So I was going back cross country alone anyway. And I thought, I'm a writer. I love to do these travel memoirs. I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to do another one for sort of time and money reasons. But I thought, how could I pass up this opportunity, especially at this particular time, such a fraught time in our country? So that was the first sort of impetus for the journey. But I also, um, you know, over the past, as you said, over the past four or five years, I found it incredibly frustrating to say the least. And one of the most frustrating aspects that I found was that there was so much that went on on a daily basis in terms of scandal and untruth and just sort of rhetoric that was meant to divide us and all, all that. And it happened so often, so daily, that it sort of became white noise in my view. And something that would have has been, has been set off and things that would have been super, super scandals in most any other presidency were often forgotten three days later because a new one happened. And I was worried that 
history was going to forget a lot of this, that time was going to reduce the, the impact and importance of these things. Um, so I wanted to make sure I captured that in real time, not a book about 2020 written 15 years later, but a book about 2020 written at the end of 2020 about a, about a cross-country summer journey two months before the election, when we were really at this inflection point in our country, many of us not knowing which way it was going to turn. And we still, frankly, don't quite know. But I thought, what a great time to examine the, the, the country. And the third reason was I just wanted to get a lot of stuff off my chest. <laughs> I had a lot to say. I'm a writer. Writers, the best writers have strong voices, and many of them have strong opinions. And um, I had a lot to say about what was going on, and I wanted to find an interesting way to do it. So what was different about this book versus my three other travel memoirs was in the other ones, I would choose my, my journey, and then it was almost like I was giving myself a challenge. You know, Can I go to this town of 150 people and find something fascinating to write about? This time around, I knew what I wanted to write about. I knew the 12 or 15 or 18 aspects of the wrong turns taken by this country over the past several years. And I wanted to write about those, but so I crafted a journey that would allow me to write about them. For example, uh, I wanted to talk about the, the fractured country, as you said, the, the fact that we're sort of a war between the states of mind going on right now. I saw my journey back to California could take me through Appomattox, Virginia, where the Civil War truce was, uh, peace was signed. I was starting right near Jamestown, Virginia. I thought, what a great way to start the book. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, I wanted to talk about the jaw-dropping amount of conspiracy theories going on in America and, and sort of started from the White House. And I thought, well, I can go through Roswell, New Mexico, uh, which is sort of the epicenter of conspiracy theories in the country. So there were various towns like that that I thought would give me an opportunity to explore these notions uh, in, current, in a current event sense, in a historical sense, anyone I would meet along the way, although I was reluctant to encounter too many people. So my journey sort of went backwards versus my other books this time. And then I knew I was going across country in this RV and that I thought I wanted to name the RV. Um, and I, I wanted it to sort of represent the confusion going on and the fact that our leadership seemed to be asleep at the wheel, so to speak. And um, so I thought, why not name it Kofefi, which was, you know, the, the Trumpian falling asleep tw Twitter nonsense. And I said, I think one man's gibberish is another man's deliverance. So that was the, the name of my RV. I'm going to paraphrase and say that maybe this is of the series of your uh, States of Mind collection, that maybe this is your most personal in a way that or reflective that, that you said you had some things you wanted to get off your chest. And that's really clear from reading the book. And you brought out some some of your own rants in I want to say a very cogent way, but it, it was getting a lot off your chest. And, and how does that kind of exposure feel to you? Well, I'm no stranger to that. I, I'm willing to speak my mind. And, and uh, I think, you know, my favorite line of the whole book is when I say that if you want this to be a dispassionate sort of examination of America, go read another book it, uh, that, that you can't drive cross country in neutral. And that's really how I feel if you can look at the past four or five years and just shrug it off and say, well, I'm not really that into politics or something like that. I think you're sort of abdicating your responsibility as a human being and uh, to, to observe and, and reflect. And I wanted to do that. You know, in a way, my hope was that people can read the book and either 
gain an understanding that they didn't quite have before, or if nothing else, find it cathartic that someone was distilling all of this nonsense and summarizing what had gone on in a in a creative and cohesive way that sort of articulated what they had been feeling over the past few years, but hadn't quite been able to articulate as such. I think if people want to 20, 25 years from now, find out what was going on in 2020 and what might have caused it and what people were thinking, you can do worse than pick up a book about a, a guy traveling across the country and um, putting his thoughts on paper as they relate to the, the people and the places he, he travels through, you know, so there's nothing wrong with a cathartic read, I think. And it's filled with with your own wit and observations that not all of us have experienced. You went through a lot of places that surprised in in good ways and in, in bad ways. Um, as you're traveling back to California, you are compelled, as, as so many of us when we drive across country are, to stop at the Grand Canyon and a place where you know the the awesomeness of that place humbles even the most strident and and that was an observation that you made that some places some settings seem to cut through it all yeah you know first of all I, going i was going i was going through flagstaff arizona i couldn't possibly not take an hour and a half detour and go see grand canyon um you know there were two great metaphors in my book one was the RV itself, which I say from the beginning was, and this is entirely true. As I was driving from California to Wisconsin before this whole trip ever happened, it died, it fell apart in the middle of nowhere. And for the next several months and during my whole 3,400 mile journey, it was sputtering and nearly dying at nearly every stop. And I took it to several mechanics. Nobody could fix it. And as a driver, it was incredibly frustrating because it was really kind of scary. Um, you know, I'd spend half of my drive on high alert, sort of describing what I saw and what I was thinking into my phone. And I spent the other half looking at the, on the shoulder, looking at the shoulder on the side of the road to see where I would have to go if my car, if my RV died, <laughs> you know? Um, but as a writer, it was a gift. It was a, what a perfect contribution to the narrative. Um, this metaphor that this RV represented how I felt about the country at the moment, that it seemed to be sputtering and idling and, and would it make it? So that was perfect. That was the one metaphor. And then the, was at the end when I, when I arrived at the Grand Canyon, I mean, obviously it's a, just a, an awe-inspiring place. And um, there were people there, many of them masked, many of them unmasked, but none of them talking politics, all of them sort of gaping in wonder and ooing and eyeing at the, at the wonder of the world in front of them and smiling at each other. And um, I realized that there are places that we can still come together. We can still realize that, and there's this great metaphor that first of all, it took an incredibly long time to create that divide. The divide being not only the Grand Canyon, but this American divide. It wasn't just something that happened overnight. It's, it was gradual. It was exacerbated overnight in, in the case of the American divide. But, and there's also the notion that in order to cross that divide, there's no bridge across it. You have to go all the way down to the bottom before you can go back up again. Uh, and I thought, well, that's kind of a hopeful way of looking at things. So I, I felt that that was kind of an optimistic way to, um, to conclude the book, although I, did, I purposely concluded it 
there with still 700 miles to go of my journey. Um, because as we all were at that inflection point, I wasn't sure how it would turn out. Well, Brad, uh, thank you. I thought this was a good read and thought provoking and, you know, many of us, including myself, I'm about to embark on a road trip and, and it seems like many people have hit the road during this pandemic. So I, I guess I'm wondering if you have any any words for us to maybe color how we might travel forth uh, uh, across the country. I, I used to describe America as this masterpiece of pointillism that it's not really a patchwork quilt or a melting pot, that I, I like to call it this masterpiece of a dot painting. Um, now, twist my arm now, I might say it's no longer a masterpiece. It's more like finger painting these days. But you know what I mean by a masterpiece of pointillism is that all these little dots on the map can tell a story. And you know, taken it from a, from a distance as a whole, they tell a grand story. But if you look closely at each little one, they all tell their own stories. And I think that's something to remember as we travel across this country. And that could not only mean the small towns of America. It could also mean, you know, I could write a sort of, quote unquote, U.S. travel memoir about exploring the people who live in an apartment complex in Philadelphia. You know, those are all little dots too. each person in each apartment. Um, So if we could if we sort of take time to appreciate the small wonders that we pass along the way, rather than just focusing on getting from here to there or going from this national park to that national park. Although I think we should all be marveling at our national parks. We don't do enough of that. There are too many foreign languages spoken in our national park. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean, there's not enough Americans visiting our own backyard. But uh, if we could all sort of appreciate the small things that, that we see along the way, an example of that being... I'm a connoisseur of town slogans. And I talk about that in the book too. You know, you pass by going 60 miles per hour in a town of 500 people, they print their slogan, you know, a slice of heaven on highway seven, or, you know, the golden buckle of the corn belt, or, you know, they're just wonderful little slogans that make you, if they can make you laugh as you're zooming by at 70 miles per hour, that's the victory on their part. Right. And, um, and that says something about that town. So we're all trying to, we're all trying to make our way in this world, including these small towns that are trying to survive. And I often think of them as, as candles that are slowly starting to flicker out because these towns that used to be a thousand people are now a hundred people and soon will be 10 people. So if we can appreciate those candles while they're still lit, I think that can do us all a lot of good. Yes. And you finished writing this book before the election results and the happenings of of January 6th. And I wonder if you are left today feeling hopeful or still a little wary. You know, I I tend to be, this will not surprise you, Suzanne, but I tend to be a a glass is half empty kind of guy. But, um, (laughs) but, uh, But on the other hand, I was even surprised by January 6th. I mean, I was... I wasn't surprised that the, the people who gathered, I was surprised at how it turned out, but, but I was also surprised by November 6th and, he, and the Georgia result. Uh, so I find, I've said this someone to a friend of mine the other day, I, I kind of feel right now, I actually got my first vaccine shot yesterday and I feel that there are people, there are competent, decent people in leadership right now. 
and that I, I, I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I was said to my friend the other day that I sort of feel like how I used to feel when I was a, a middle school or high school student and it was maybe late April or, and summer was around the corner and I just couldn't wait. And I was optimistic about what's coming. I sort of have that feeling right now, which is, which says a lot because I've been wallowing in, in frustration and sort of banging my head against the wall for several years. Um, and, and I describe in the book that we all sort of, many of us had this overarching sense of impending doom that was hovering over us. I do feel like that cloud is, is starting to go away. At least I'm hopeful that it is. Um, we'll see where it takes us. Brad Herzog, I thank you so much for bringing these books to us and for talking with me today, Brad. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Brad Herzog, Detour 2020, a cross-country drive through America's wrong turns. Earlier, we heard from Brennan Matthews with his road trip book, Miles to Go, An African Family in Search of America Along Route 66. Check them out online. Check us out online or via your streaming service. Brad Herzog tells many stories of his journey in my full conversation with him, which you can find along with other past shows at norcalpublicmedia.org. Follow the podcast links. Our music today was Natalie Cole singing her version of a song made famous by her dad, Nat, and also a bit of Randy Newman's score from the movie Cars. What else? I am Suzanne Lang, and I thank you for letting me join you today. We have production assistance from Will Penny and Mark Prell. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB, Northern California Public Media, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's a novel idea. Six, six.